Father, we commit ourselves to you. Pray your blessings upon the reading and the exposition of your word. Pray your consolation and the Holy Spirit nearness to Elizabeth, to, to a widow who was not expecting to become a widow this morning. Please have mercy. Have mercy on the children too. And in this sad event for us, not for Michael, because he's seeing you. He's enjoying what we long for. And he passed quickly to eternity, having trusted you. So for him it is joy, but not for those who remain. We do not grieve as those who have no hope grieve. We know that the Lord will come and will call us out of the grave. And we will see his face. But Father, we pray for consolation. Pray the same for Monica Stinson, the wife of Manny. Now draw near to us, we pray. Glorify yourself. We do what we do. Honoring you, obeying you, following the instruction that in the church gathered, your word is read and taught and preached. We pray that Christ may be exalted. In his name we ask. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Let us read together verses 13 through 20. First Thessalonians 2, 13 through 20. We continue on our consecutive exposition of this letter. This morning's sermon is the legacy of a faithful ministry. The legacy of of a faithful ministry. First Corinthians, First Thessalonians 2, 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all, man, all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn, torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory, and our joy. May God bless the reading of his word. Legacy is a code word. Many circles, as some of us age, we think frequently on legacy because we see the time drawing near. When you're young, legacy, what is that? In companies, legacy, who's going to be the replacement? team, the replacing management team, who's going to be doing things after the current management is gone. And we have this thought about what are we going to leave when we're gone? 
Because Ecclesiastes says that God put eternity in the hearts of men. Even though we do not understand the end of his works. But we were not made to die, but we die. So we have this thought of eternity, legacy, what will my life count for? And today's sermon is the legacy of a faithful ministry. We've been considering Paul's anecdotal remarks about his ministry in Thessalonica that lasted three weeks, at least the first time. Some, some experts believe that he returned, but at least the first time it was only three weeks. And from those three weeks, Paul speaks anecdotically in this first epistle. And then we've gleaned from that passage some of those marks of a faithful ministry. If you want an outline, and, and again, outline, outlines are devices that preachers make to just follow a text. But Paul didn't write with an outline in mind. Paul didn't write with an alliteration as we try to do it. He was a Jewish rabbi. He was just recollecting his ministry among the, Thessalon- the Thessalonians. And he was expressing his own heart as he writes to them. But if you want an outline, here's an, here's an option. Paul's emotions in this passage. His gratitude for how the Thessalonians received the word. His, his praise of, about their enduring persecution in the midst of affliction. His indignation at the Jews because of their resisting and opposing the gospel. And also his fond affection for the Thessalonians whom he longed to see again face to face. If you want another version of the outline, then you can see contrasts. And what is contrasted here? And perhaps Paul as a Jewish rabbi was thinking more along these lines. Because they, they wrote in parallelisms or in, in contrast devices or chiastically opposing ideas in the form of an X. Perhaps Paul was thinking along those lines, but I don't know that. It's just trying to figure out the way the text is written. Well, he saw the Thessalonians' reception of the gospel in verse 12. Then he saw their resisting rejection in, verses, in verse 14. The Jews' rejection and opposing of the gospel. And finally, Paul's rejoicing and affection over the Thessalonians. Whatever you want to choose is just a, 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 a device to consider what is this portion of Scripture about What does this have to do with anything? Again, he's just recollecting his ministry among the Thessalonians. But I'd like to, from that recollection, consider three things with you guys this morning. Three. The first one would be about what Paul says regarding the Thessalonians receiving the word of God. He says, I thank God that when I was with you, you received the word, not as the word of men, but as, as it really is the word of God. Now, first things first. This passage has nothing to do, zero, with the verbal, verbal and plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Let me plug in an ad here. Systematic theology is great. I have taught it. I believe it should be taught. Confessions are great. But here's a problem that sometimes systematic theology has. We talk about verbal and plenary inspiration of the scriptures, and we pull that as a proof text. That's not a proof text about the inspiration of the scriptures. Paul is not talking about written scripture 
and the process of the Holy Spirit breathing out the Word of God on those who recorded it and in what we call Scripture. Nothing to do with that. Conversely, that passage doesn't teach what many in Christendom wrongly think that anything and everything the apostles said or wrote was the Word of God. No, it's not. The apostles were human beings. Some of their writings were compiled as the Word of God, but that doesn't mean that the apostles, after the resurrection, whatever they said and did was sinless, faultless, perfect, and inerrant. In fact, Paul writing to the Corinthians apologizes for something he wrote to the Corinthians in the same letter. And it's a letter breathed out by God. We take it as scripture. But Paul says, guys, I apologize. I've made a fool of myself boasting. I should have not done that. What then is the passage about? The passage is about the dynamics of gospel preaching in the synagogues when Paul went about with his missionary team preaching the word. Paul, Timothy, Silas, what would they do? What would they do when Barnabas was part of the team? They would go into the synagogues of the Jews. That was the meeting place. That was the worship time and the gathering of God's people. And they would be given a copy of the Old Testament scriptures. And from whatever copy of the Old Testament scriptures, they would preach Christ. And they would demonstrate from the Old Testament... That the promises, the text, the passages, and the teachings of the Old Testament all pointed to Christ. Why? Because that is how Jesus taught them to read the Bible. In Luke 24, we have this statement twice from Jesus. That opening the scriptures, he pointed to them. How from the law of Moses, to the historical writings, to the poetry in the Old Testament, to the prophets... Everything was about him, the Christ. And in verse 45, we find this interesting passage that only Luke records. And it is when Jesus blows upon the apostles and tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. And from that point on, their eyes were opened. And they could see clearly God's redemptive purposes in Christ. And the only Bible, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. They could clearly see Christ's redemption, the gospel, from the Old Testament. And this is what Paul is talking about. In Acts 17, 2 and 3, according to Paul's custom, Luke records, he went to them, to who? To the Jews in the synagogue, for three Sabbaths. This is the account in Thessalonica. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. What scriptures? The Tanakh, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ, the anointed Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, the promised one. That's what he meant when he wrote, I am grateful 
that when I went to you with that persuasion from the scriptures of the Old Testament about the Christ, you received it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, the message from God. You have other examples in the book of Acts. He did the same at Corinth. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade the Jews about what? About the Christ, about the kingdom of God. Again, Luke records Acts 19.8. In Ephesus, he entered the synagogue, continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That dynamic of preaching Christ as Messiah, as Redeemer, from the scriptures of the Old Testament, opening God's redemptive purposes, that, Paul says, you took it, Thessalonians, as the word of God. Side note, for those of you who, who, who know what I mean, this is a good argument in favor of what it has been called presuppositional apologetics. Meaning what? Meaning that people see the gospel, see the light, take the Bible as the word of God because God opens their heart. It's not because of intellectual persuasion. And I know we have all these arguments from Josh McDowell and from others, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, and many other scholars who have done that and have done a great job explaining our faith. Nobody will believe with those arguments. When God opens the eyes, we assume and take for granted, here's the word of God, here's the message of God for your soul, for your life, and you believe. Why? As Lydia in Philippi, God opened her heart, removed the scales from her eyes, and she believed. Is it wrong to know apologetics? Is classical apologetics wrong? Are we going to create a blog, as many do, pitching Sproul against Clark, and this one against the other one? No. Nothing wrong with Aquinas' classical apologetics. It's just that at the end of the day, your friends and mine and our relatives will believe when we open our mouths with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is the message of God in Christ. Let me make another remark, and I hope I don't throw anybody under, a, under the horse's legs here. Many of us have heard a fundamentalist teacher saying that Karl Barth was this heretic because he thought that the Bible is not the Word of God, but that it becomes the Word of God as we read it. <laughs> and we've heard that, and we just bash, bash Barth. And I'm not a Barthian, but let me clarify what Barth meant. He meant the same thing Luther meant, and many of the Reformers meant. First of all, the Word of God is Jesus. He is the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. So the one who is really the the Word of God is our Savior. Not an old book that is huge and big, collecting dust, and has on the cover the name Bible. And some people treat the Bible as an old Roman Catholic would treat a saint. They just need to put a little candle on it and some, I don't know, 
whatever and just venerate the Bible is the Word of God. Don't touch it. That's not the Word of God. The Word of God is when it is spoken in the gathered assembly of God's people and Christ is proclaimed from it and it becomes a double-edged sword that trespasses our very thoughts, discerns the intentions of our hearts, puts us face to face with God and drives us to the cross. That's the Word of God. Not just a book collecting dust that we venerate because it is the book. That's what Barth meant. And by the way, I'm not a Barthian. Now, when we gather as a church to proclaim the scriptures, to hear the scriptures as the word of God, come ready. Come ready to receive the word. Many of us just, just show up. What will Father Freddy or Father Edwin or Father Victor or whomever teaches Sunday school will say today in the evangelical mass? No. Come ready to hear the word of God proclaimed through scripture, proclaiming and announcing Christ. That doesn't mean that pastors speak inspired. Not saying that. That doesn't mean that the sermons are the word of God, like the prophets of old. No. That means that that is the dynamics of hearing God's word in the gathered church. That is what Paul is making reference in this text. You heard us preach from the Old Testament, not as the word of men, but as the message of God. Be active hearing the word. I know that sometimes we are boring. I get it. Freddie and I, Freddie, I'm sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disclose a secret. You know what Freddie and I do? We exchange notes. Do you know about what and who? Those of you who fall asleep. Do you know what we discovered? We have the same crowd that falls asleep. Because Freddie and I wonder, I mean, is it me that such and such is always like dozing off? And such and such. No, Freddie, it's not you. I have the same view. We just interchange Sundays. I get it. Sometimes your high blood, I mean, your glucose levels are high. Your blood pressure is low, whatever. But here's my point. Ask the Lord to help you be an active hearer, an engaged listener. While you're listening, if this thing is not coming out right, Lord, help him. I'm not making sense of what he's saying. Please illuminate his mind. But be an active hearer, a praying hearer, that you may listen to the word, that you may have the heart that Eli told Samuel to have when he would hear God calling him in the middle of the night. And Eli said, next time he calls, just answer, speak, Lord, your servant hears. That's the way we should always have before the word of God. Secondly, a word regarding the Jews rejecting the word. Verse 14, Paul says, you suffer the same things from your own countrymen, the other Thessalonians, as they did from the Jews to the churches that were in Judea. You guys had the same problem I have had, said Paul. Which one? Opposition. Gospel preaching will rise opposition. Now, I've been 41 years in this, in this field. 
Let me make some clarifications. Some Christians have martyr complex. And they just feel that opposition is their validation to faithfulness. So let me see how knucklehead can I be so that people oppose my knuckleheadedness, if that adverb exists, and then I feel that I'm being faithful to the Lord. Nothing to do with that. Just preach the word. Just plant the seed. On its own, it will lift and rise opposition. Paul says the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And as a result, Paul makes a very strong statement. They displease God, oppose all mankind by hearing them from listening to the word and wrath has come upon them at last. Very strong words. So strong that some commentators have questioned whether those words are original in the text. Yes, they are. Paul wrote what he wrote about the Jews. Their rejection of the gospel provoked God's displeasure. You may remember the case of Barhasis in the book of Acts, who was left blind and was called son of the devil because he was not only resisting the message himself, but opposing those who resisted or those who heard. Some people are not just happy with them not listening. They are actually interested in hindering others from listening. Paul says those were the Jews, and that causes God's displeasure. An exhortation? Be careful. You may not want to listen. <laughs> Let the others listen in peace. Don't, don't join the crowd that helps Satan by removing the planted seed, according to the parable of the sower. Paul says they oppose mankind. What an accusation. That's a very strong accusation. That's a strong accusation that brought the heinous, tragic, sinful, wicked Holocaust back in the day from Nazi Germany. Paul makes an accusation of they oppose mankind. Why? Because they hinder the preaching of the gospel. Wherever Paul and his team would go, they would follow suit. Saying those who upset the whole world are, have come here. And they would try to do anything in their power to stop the preaching of Christ. Paul accuses them of opposing mankind by hindering their listening to the gospel. Obviously, in context, Paul is talking about the Jews of his day. He's not making a generic ethnic statement for the record. But they provoked the wrath of God upon them. What happened in 70 AD, when a repetition of the abomination of desolation of which Daniel spoke, when Titus surrounded Jerusalem and flattened the city and destroyed was a result of their provoking God's wrath. Side note, know your Bible so that you don't believe that there are three kinds of people in the planet. Believers, unbelievers, and Israel. And somehow Israel is in this category of, well, they are not Christians, but, but they are okay. They are not okay. They... 
Paul says, I've accused both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under the judgment of God. And there's only one way out, and it is Christ. Make no mistakes, even if your favorite and, and, and hero preacher doesn't agree with that statement. I'm just quoting what Paul thought and wrote. Jesus stated this repeatedly in his parables. He told the Jews, he warned them, it's a vineyard. And God will remove his vineyard from those initial laborers who were unfaithful and will give it to others. And Jesus was foretelling the kingdom of God being transferred to Gentiles, to the church of the new covenant. After the centurion servant was healed, Jesus warned the Jews, many will come from the east and from the west and will sit with Abraham and Isaac and the patriarchs at the kingdom of God. But the children of the kingdom will be cast out to outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus warned Israel, this is coming upon you because of your rejection of him as Messiah because of the rejection of the gospel. I invited you to the wedding feast for my son. And you gave all kinds of excuses. Well, I'm going to invite others who are more worthy than you. And those first that were invited, those will be destroyed. These are Jesus' parables and statements to the Israel of his day. Paul is just repeating that. A side note, the church. The church is God's kingdom. Somebody has called it heaven's outpost, the consulate of the kingdom. There's no other institution on planet earth that has the imprimatur of God as the recipient, administrator, carrier of the affairs of his kingdom. There may be great seminaries, great parachurch institutions, great foundations for benevolence. Today is the day for Samaritan's Purse. Awesome. Pray for them. They are doing a great job. But none of those institutions are the carriers of the affairs of the kingdom as the church is. Only the church is called in scripture the temple of God, the household of God, the family of God, the bulwark, standard of the truth. Only the church. How do we treat the church? Name dropping is wrong. Please don't do name dropping. Allow me to sin this morning and do some name dropping. I need to, for the sake of illustrating this point. Three weeks ago, we received members into our church. We had Darren and Christina, we had Bob, and we had Elizabeth. If we had anybody else, forgive me. I'm an old dude with beginnings of dementia, so sorry if I forgot you. But it's fascinating because Freddie Freddie brought this up in a conversation over the phone. He said, isn't it interesting that you have Bob Andrews, the Lord may give him 30 more years, we don't know, but Bob Andrews is an older dude. First thing he tried to do when he ceased fellowship with a church he was a pastor at was joining a gathering of believers to seek fellowship with a church. 
And then we have Elizabeth who got all kinds of scholarships to go to wherever she wanted to go to study. And she says, ah, no, I'm going to stay here. I'd rather remain with my church family instead of pursuing Harvard or whatever Ivy League school she got a scholarship for. I'm sorry I'm doing this. I'm really sorry. I don't want to put anybody up and I don't want to put anybody down. But I'm bringing a point. What's the most important thing to you? What do you value the most? Or is church just this patch that you put on and you, you know, I wear this, I have, I've told you, four, four of these. And I try to alternate them when I preach. I don't wear them any other time. That's it. Is that church? The, the, the jacket we wear on, on Sundays just to come and visit with people? Or do we realize that the church is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the people of God, the kingdom of God, the new Israel? And that is manifest in how we interact with the church. And I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm just making a statement about what Paul said regarding Israel. And even what he says about the Thessalonians. Now I want to go see you face to face. I long to be with you. I need to be with you. Paul himself, being taught by the Lord, he came to Jerusalem. First things he did. I, he wanted to be with the disciples. He could have said, well, the Lord taught me for 14 years in Arabia, so we don't need you guys. No, no, no. He wanted to be with the disciples. And he went and checked with Peter and James. He says, Let me tell you what I learned about the gospel. Could you verify that I'm on the right path? And they said, yes, you got the same gospel from Jesus that we got. You're one of us. There's no maverick, no ranger alone superhero in the kingdom. That's not something the New Testament knows. And finally, Paul's, Paul's rejoicing and longing over the Thessalonians, verses 17 through 20. We were torn away from you. We were separated from you. Not in person. I mean, not in heart, but in person. However, our hearts were still knit to you. I don't know if it happens to you when you go on vacation. That you, that you say, oh, it's, oh, the church is gathering now. Freddie must be preaching, or Victor must be teaching, or whomever must be doing something. Because your heart is somehow still linked to God's people, to where you belong, or whatever the church you go to or are part of. I'm not talking about only this one. There are many of those in the kingdom of God. But the point is, Paul says, my heart is knit to you, but I long to see you face to face. Great if you're watching over the internet, maybe two or three people still watch. Awesome, hi. But no, it doesn't cut it. It is face to face. It is interacting with one another. It is being together in fellowship. And Paul says, and I wanted to, but Satan hindered us. He expressed his affection for the Thessalonians. But you know what he also did? He recognized the reality of Satan as a personal entity whose schemes he did not ignore. He says that to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.11. We're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Beloved, we should not be ignorant either. The other day I was talking to a, to a good brother. He's telling me about some issues that are causing harm in his congregation. And I said to him, don't forget. Don't forget. Politicians come and go. 
that fads come and go, and that all the father of lies and the homicide from the beginning is seeking to do is to destroy and devour. 1 Peter 5.8 Don't be ignorant of that reality. So whenever you engage into any argument with someone over something minuscule and insignificant, be aware of the devil's schemes. And I love that in this last portion also, Paul speaks of the reward of a faithful ministry. He says, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus and his coming? For you are our crown and glory, he says. Paul's ministry had a vision. You've seen that map of the book of Acts I've shown before. You see, he started little line, little circle, bigger circle, larger circle, made it to Rome, and says, I would like to get to Spain. We don't know if he made it to Spain. But the guy had a plan in view. And he would even say, and I don't want to go to places that others have gone. I want to go to new places, to green fields, or or white fields. Pentecostals have that expression. No, there's behind that mountain, there's a community, there's a white field. That's where I want to go and start a church because there's nothing there. That, that was Paul's vision. He had a vision for his ministry. He didn't go haphazardly. But Paul was not driven by his vision. Paul was people-driven. He was driven by the people. He was driven by his desire to see disciples grow and be established. So he tells the Thessalonians, you are my crown. You are my joy. You are my reward. Because the ultimate goal in ministry is the salvation and the sanctification of people. That is a great commission. The ultimate goal in ministry is not a task. It's not to devise a strategy to see how we make the church larger and move to a better place, to a larger place, and raise more money to build a building. And that's, that's not what the church is for. If it happens, awesome. Great. Blessed be the Lord for churches that can host 3,000, 4,000, and can pay thousands of missionaries and hundreds of benevolent foundations. Amen. Awesome. But that's not what church is about. Church is about building the saints up. Church is about edifying one another, building up one another in love. Interesting that in verse 19, perhaps Paul makes this reference to the crowning of athletes. They were given some kind of crown dedicated to the deities of their time and it was a glorious moment for them perhaps a crowning of a dignitary of a king paul says yeah yeah i want to be crowned but you are my crown you are my joy i'm looking to the coming of the lord i'm looking to that time when jesus will return First Peter describes it when the chief shepherd appears and every under-shepherd will be called to him. And Paul says, in that day, 
that I anticipate and that I labor for. I want to be crowned with seeing you there. I want to be crowned with a ministry that honored Christ and raised disciples for him. And you are part of that. The legacy of a faithful ministry is not displayed in achievements, in accolades, in titles and degrees, in things to show the world or other Christians. The legacy of a faithful ministry, just as parents rejoice over children, he's seeing with John, I have no greater joy than this, than to see my children walking in the truth. Nothing. Nothing compares to that if the minister is a people's person. If the minister is an executive who wants to fill his own ego or his own accolades or just wants to feel validated through what happens in the church, no, that's not going to happen. But if it's a man of God who has been given a pastor's heart, his crown, his joy, and his glory is just seeing the Great Commission happen as disciples are being taught and made and trained. Conclusion, the marks of a faithful ministry. That's what we've covered in this anecdotal session. The message, the gospel of God. The motivation, not greed, not covetousness, love. The method, kind, selfless, tender humility. Servants, nursing mothers. The instruction, yes, feeding the mind, encouraging the soul, exhorting the will, sometimes as a father does in a manly way to his children. And the legacy, what we saw today, the reception of the word, resisting the world's rejection, the reward of eternity. Beloved, those are the marks of a faithful ministry. What will you and I settle for? Honestly, Music is getting better and better by the day. Love it. Love it. Thank you for the effort that Tony and the team made to, to, to improve on the music. You're playing the guitar is getting better. Awesome. Thank you. But is that what we come for? To listen to nice music? To, to be entertained? To get our Sunday free concert? Of Christian music? No. Do we come for programs? For activities? For ministries? For things for children? For the youth? For the ladies? For the men? Just let's get busy? No. Marks of a faithful ministry are God-centered. Christ-exalted. Or Christ-exalting. Spirit-driven. Look for that here or wherever you go, whether there be 20 or 2,000. And may God bless the talking and reading of his word. Father, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to love and buy the truth. Sell it not. Help us, Father, to be aligned with the purposes of glorifying Christ, expanding your kingdom in the church, fulfilling the great commission, because behold, you are with us, even to the end of the age, 
may you be with us, because in your mercy you have kept us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.